Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 55, The Stalker. Mark Stover grew up on Mercer Island, which is a wealthy suburb of Seattle. He lived with his mom and his sister. His dad passed away when he was two. However, a North Star in Mark's young life was his relationship with his German shepherd, Greta. The connection between the two ran deep. An unbreakable bond that no matter what happened in Mark's life, he could always count on Greta to be by his side. Until she passed away when he was a teenager. Mark was known to be a wild teen. He had his own ideas about things. He was passionate about history and politics. He loved to read and was highly intelligent. But by 10th grade, he was disenchanted with school and dropped out. But when he was 18, he joined the Merchant Marines and got a second German Shepherd. It wasn't long before Mark had a focus in his life. He wanted to breed and train dogs. Building a business, any business from scratch isn't easy. But Mark had a great advantage. He was just naturally gifted with animals, and he built on this. He went back to school and earned a degree in psychology. He also minored in history in 1976. And he continued to pour himself into his dog training business, and the sweat equity began to pay off. Through word of mouth, he built a very loyal clientele. But there was a dichotomy to Mark's life. He was very practical in using his degree in psychology to help him not only understand and connect with dogs, but also people. But here's the thing, when it came to Mark's own psychology, beyond discourse and banter, when it came to his personal layers, his underbelly, he was about as fortified as Fort Knox. According to a piece in the Mercer Island Reporter, Mark Stover's friend would refer to him as, quote, chameleon-like that he would change his approach, dress, even his mode of transportation, depending upon his mood and the situation at hand, that he was outspoken on every subject, except his own closely guarded personal life. Mark was well-beloved. I met several of his longtime friends, people who had known him in high school. Mark had attended uh, Mercer Island High School. And boy, that, that was a group of guys who just would have done anything for Mark, who loved him, you know, foibles and all, quirkiness and all, political opinions. They just, they, just thought, they just thought the world of him. That's Lee Heron. She's the owner of Lee Heron Investigation Services. We'll get back to the why and how she came into Mark's life in a bit. But for now, in the early 90s, all of Mark's hard work and talents had skyrocketed him into the rarefied air of training protection and police dogs. His expertise led to him being sought as an expert witness to testify about dog behavior in court. But Mark was just was known as the dog whisperer, and it was a skill that he had honed on his own starting in high school, and he obviously had a, a real gift for communicating and working with canines. And I think that as his reputation grew, he just became much more uh, in demand. The local celebrities who perhaps didn't have time to train their dog, but, but knew, that, knew that they could count on Mark to, to, help, to help them turn their animal into a beloved pet. 
some of Mark's clientele included members of Pearl Jam, movie maker Cameron Crowe and his wife, singer Nancy Wilson of Heart, and even beloved Mariners outfielder Ichiro. In a Seattle Times article, when asked about what led him to build his business, Mark would say, quote, I had a dream, and I went for it, and I wasn't going to let anyone tell me what to do. 1991 was a banner year for Mark, personally as well, because he would meet Linda Updike, a beautiful heiress. Her father was a wealthy entrepreneur who once co-owned the Chateau Saint-Michel Winery and ski manufacturer K2. The thing is, Mark and Linda were a very interesting match. She was six foot tall. Mark was 5'8". He was in his late 30s, 12 years older than Linda. But what connected them both were their love of the outdoors and animals. In 1992, they started a business together called Island Dog Adventures, a world-class canine training facility. They lived and worked on a private island in the Puget Sound that Linda's family owned, the entire island. And life there was a dream. Mark was in his happy place training and caring for the dogs, in between discussing politics and history with clients, while Linda ran the business. Island Dog Adventures was 55 miles north of Seattle. According to an article in the Puget Sound Business Journal, for $45 a day, dogs get out three times daily for exercise time, running on trails, getting beach time to swim and play, plus pedicures, grooming, and detailed attention to any special dietary needs. One man insists that his dog get a sardine with every meal. Another dog gets five bones a day with meals. In 2002, Mark and Linda would get married. Everything seemed to be just going fabulously for the couple, but looks can often be deceiving. A few years into the marriage, things started to unravel. Employees began to notice that Linda was spending long stretches away from the island. The divide between the couple deepened when, in September of 2005, Linda actually moved into a guest house on the island. She said that she did this, quote, in hopes we might be able to possibly fix something and Mark might understand the gravity of the situation and work further on the relationship. And that did not happen, end quote. In April of 2006, Linda told Mark that she wanted a divorce because, according to her, he wasn't getting help on his anger and rages and the problems we were having in our personal relationship, and so I decided it was time for me to go. Everyone knows divorces can be messy. Sometimes it's the littlest things, like a wedding album and a candle that set in motion a toxic chain reaction of emotions. And this appeared to be the case when it came to the dissolution of Mark and Linda's marriage. Linda would move five hours away to Winthrop. And in the spring of 2007, she would say that she reached out to Mark to see if he wanted any wedding items, specifically two wedding albums and a candle. According to her, he wasn't interested. So she threw away the candle and the albums, but decided to keep the photos. She wanted to look through them and see if there were any of friends and family that she wanted to keep. Linda says Mark was bitter when he found out that she'd thrown away these items. And it wasn't just the wedding stuff that he was angry about. There was also their battle over the dog business. I mean, what do you do when the business that you've grown and loved is on an island that your in-laws own? You either got to find another island, and if you can't do that, you've got to figure something else out. Which is exactly what Mark did. In May of 2007, he left the island and moved his boarding and dog training business to a temporary home in Anacortes, about 20 minutes away. And in August of 2007, Linda officially filed for divorce. Mark wasn't happy. In fact, his response 
was to ditch a fishing trip in Montana, drive 18 hours straight to Linda's home in Winthrop. And when he showed up, he was distraught. She described him as emotional and that he allegedly got down on his knees next to her bedside saying he couldn't let the marriage go, that he had a pistol in his hand and that he laid it on the pillow next to her head. Linda would say that after a while, she would be able to calm him down enough so that when she asked him to leave, he did. But she would say that the situation would continue to spiral to the point where she was afraid for her life, that Mark kept demanding these wedding photos, that he harassed and stalked her on multiple occasions. Linda would say that she was so terrified of her estranged husband that she changed all the locks, armed herself to the teeth in the house, and installed a sophisticated security surveillance system. The situation would continue to escalate when, in the fall of 2007, Mark found out that Linda had slept with his best friend. And as a result, she would receive an email from his friend, who explained to her that he had a long and very frank conversation with Mark, that he couldn't see her anymore. He added, quote, for your safety, for my children's sake and for my own, he wanted to end the affair. He also encouraged her to, quote, take all necessary steps to secure your own safety. Two months later, the marriage between Linda and Mark was dissolved. Ultimately, Mark would pay Linda $100,000 for her interest in the business. However, according to court documents, a week later on January 22, 2008, Linda would receive a phone message from Mark saying, quote, You know, I can hurt you too, and I know how to do it. This is war. This is goddamn war. You're wrecking my life. You've wrecked my life enough. He would also leave her a voicemail about the wedding photos on Valentine's Day. He said, quote, If I ever, for whatever means, find out that you are still in possession of those wedding things, I don't care if it is 5, 10, or 20 years from now, I'm coming to see you big time. You got your goddamn divorce, but I better not ever find out that you are in possession of those wedding pictures, or I will never forget this, and you know I'm a guy that can hold a grudge until I am dead. Things came to a head in March. When one of Linda's neighbors saw Mark going through her garbage, Linda called the police and Mark was arrested for stalking and theft. He was slapped with a domestic violence protection order, which prohibited Mark from contacting Linda. Mark would enter an Alfred plea for stalking which is essentially a type of guilty plea, but it's unique in that the defendant does not admit to committing the crime, but agrees that the prosecution has enough evidence to obtain a conviction. As a result of this Alford plea, Mark would be sentenced to two years of probation, and he had to complete a 12-month anger management program and give up his guns. If he did this without incident, his record would be wiped clean. In the plea, Mark would say, quote, I am making an Alfred plea because I did not intend to frighten Linda, nor do I think that my actions did actually cause her fear. Rather, they angered her. By making this deal, Mark, a self-described libertarian hunter and firearm collector, also signed away his rights to carry until 2010. It seems like this last court battle would prove to be the wake-up call Mark needed. He adhered to the protection order. He got rid of his guns and did not contact Linda again. He started piecing his life together, putting his full attention into the one thing he'd always been passionate about, his dog training business. And by his side the entire time was his trusted companion Dingo, or Ding, his beloved Belgian Malinois, who went everywhere with him. 
Not only was she his best friend in the world, but also his protection. And things really started to turn around for Mark. He was able to purchase an ideal piece of property in Anacortes for his business and home. Four acres of land with a house, a barn, indoor and outdoor kennels, and a fenced area for his dogs to run. By October 2008, Mark, now 57, had found love again, a woman that he'd met through a mutual friend. Linda had met someone new as well, a man named Michael Oakes. The relationship had started out professionally. He was a security expert who she sought advice from as a paid consultant. She met with him and shared her cache of court documents, home security footage, Mark's phone messages, and letters that she'd written to law enforcement. She wanted Michael's opinion into what she referred to as the stalking situation with her ex. She was looking for his advice about how to better protect herself from her ex-husband. Michael Oakes was in his early 40s, living about four hours away from where Linda lived. He worked in sales but had a side hustle as an experienced tactical and contingency planner. It seems that even though Mark appears to have moved on with his life, Linda still believed that she was in danger. He was supposed to have been hired as a bodyguard and they fell madly in love. And Linda seems to have convinced him that Mark was a true present threat to her well-being. In the spring of 2009, Linda and Michael's business relationship became romantic, and Michael Oakes began spending a lot of time at Linda's place in Winthrop. Meantime, in Anacortes, even though Mark was happy in his new relationship, his business was booming, but like the dogs he so lovingly trained, Mark sensed trouble in the air. His fiance would say that he was anxious, but he tried to hide it because he didn't want her to have to bear that burden. He told her that someone was trying to kill him, that he knew he was being followed. In fact, he was so paranoid, he didn't even want to leave a paper trail, so he only used cash and would call from payphones. He didn't even want to use his cell phone regularly. Mark's fears ramped up when two anonymous calls were made in August of 2009 to the Skagit County Sheriff's Office. Skagit County had received two anonymous phone calls saying that Mark Stover was transporting a large quantity of drugs from his home in Anacortes down to Seattle. Apparently that was all it took for the Skagit County police to, to pull him over. Mark immediately suspected that his ex-wife and ex-father-in-law had something to do with this. As I said, he adamantly denied doing anything of the kind. He, he, was not into drugs at all, and, um, and it certainly wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize his business. It was ludicrous. Mark would take the extraordinary step of hiring a private investigator. I was hired in August 2009 by Jeff Cradle, who's a well-known criminal defense attorney in Seattle. And Jeff had been contacted by Mark Stover, who was extremely upset because he had been pulled over by the Skagit County Police Office by a couple of deputies who wanted to search his car. And he, at the time, Mark was, was driving a van and it was filled with dogs and dog food. And he had no idea why this was occurring to him. And, and the police confiscated his van and that's when he called Mr. Cradle and that's when Mr. Cradle called me. Mark obviously denied vigorously that there were any drugs in his van, but we didn't know because the van was now in the hands of the police. And if they found anything, in or outside the van, it was going to go down to the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab. And God knows when we'd find out if they had anything. So my, I would felt like I was on a timeline um, or a deadline to try to beat the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab with coming up with results. So that's, that's when I stepped in. 
A metal magnet container was found on the undercarriage of Mark's van. Inside, there was a small amount of low-grade cocaine and marijuana. Mark was so adamant that the drugs were not his, that he had no idea what was happening, that even the deputy who pulled him over believed it could be a setup. The anonymous man who called in the tip whispered and acted strange. Mark wasn't arrested that day, but he was worried. And for a man who collected guns, felt safe with them in the house, he was in a frightful state. The only thing he had for protection was Dingo. Remember, when he signed that Alfred plea, he had to relinquish all of his guns, and the two years was almost up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It was a crisp late October morning in 2009, a Wednesday, which meant Mark would be out and about meeting clients. You could set a watch to Mark's schedule. He was a very disciplined man and rarely deviated from his routines. Every Tuesday and Wednesday, Mark was booked with appointments in Seattle with his clients. The night before that Wednesday morning, he'd spoken to Amber, one of his employees. In spite of his worries, he'd been so excited about the business. He shared with her his plans for the next morning, that he was leaving at 7.30 for a 9 o'clock appointment and would see her when he returned. Mark usually drove his BMW when he met with Seattle clients. When Amber arrived at 8 o'clock that morning, she was pretty surprised to find that all the dogs in the kennels were barking like crazy, which wasn't the norm. She quickly walked over to them, trying to calm them down. Then she noticed that Mark's white station wagon wasn't parked in its usual spot further down the driveway. On that morning, it was backed up to his BMW that was still parked in the carport. Amber reasoned that Mark must have been delayed that morning, so she headed for the house. But when she turned the doorknob to go inside, it was locked. The door was never locked. She was wondering what was going on, but then her eyes lasered in on something else. There were droplets of blood on the ground. Her pulse quickened as she tried to make sense of these seemingly small but significant anomalies in the routine that was Mark's business. But then she kind of reasoned them out. It all seemed to make sense. The blood was probably from Ding, who had recently had a surgery. She probably managed to reopen her wound, and that's what caused Mark's delay, because he was tending to it before he left. So Amber just went on with her day, which included driving dogs to Seattle in the company van. So she left the property. About 30 minutes later, Stephanie arrived, another employee, and she began walking several dogs. And then she saw Mark, wearing his signature brown leather hat and coat. He was coming and going from the house, carrying a bunch of large items and then putting them in the back of the station wagon. A short time later, she was surprised as she saw the white station wagon pedal to the metal barreling down the gravel driveway so fast that the tires were spitting out rocks as it flew by. Stephanie sort of stood wide-eyed. Mark never peeled down the driveway. In fact, he'd made a point that everyone had to drive slowly, and she was surprised that he didn't even stop to say hello or even give a courtesy wave goodbye. It just wasn't like him. And why was he driving the white station wagon? Whenever he went to see clients, he always drove his BMW. 
After Mark left, Stephanie went inside to use the bathroom. And when she walked through the door, she was hit with this incredibly strong odor of bleach. And then she noticed three wet spots on the entry mat in the hallway that had a red tint to them. In Stephanie's mind, it was all a little strange, but nothing inside the house seemed out of place, so she went back to work. But by the end of the day, Mark hadn't come back home. And he wasn't there the next morning either when his employees arrived to work the following day. That morning, they would find Ding lying outside under the carport, bloodied and rasping, growling in pain. One of Mark's employees would take Dingo to the vet, and it was a shock when they learned that Dingo had been shot in the face three times. That morning, Mark's fiance, Teresa, who'd been trying to get a hold of him, called one of his employees, worried. Had anyone heard from Mark? No one had. And when the employee told her that Ding was clinging to life, she immediately called the police to report Mark and his white station wagon missing. Immediately, investigators had a lead. The deputy would remember a woman who had called 911 the day before about some strange activity involving a white station wagon at a place called the Summit Park Grange, which was less than a mile from Mark's home. Apparently, the morning that Mark had torn down the driveway in his white station wagon, two women observed a white station wagon in the Grange parking lot. It was backed up to a black vehicle, trunk to trunk. The vehicles were both in this restricted area that was cordoned off by a long chain, and the women wondered how did these vehicles get in there? And more importantly, why was a man trying to move a huge roll of plastic from one trunk to the next? One of the women said out loud it looked like he was moving a body, which made them decide to call 911. As the black car drove away, they wrote down the license plate. That morning, a deputy would come out to the Grange. The black car was gone but the white station wagon was still there. He ran the plates and the owner of the vehicle came up as Mark Stover. At the time, the name Mark Stover didn't mean anything to the officer, but he did wonder how the car had bypassed the heavy chain draped across the entrance. So he went over for a closer look and saw that the cable and the chain wrapped around the post of the cordoned off area had been cut and then tied to give the appearance that the chain was locked, but it wasn't. The deputy left the Grange parking lot puzzled, but over what? There was no evidence that the black car had cut the chain, and who knew why the white station wagon was still there. But he did recognize around 12.30 that afternoon, the black car with the license plates that matched those described by the women. So he pulled the vehicle over, which was registered to a man named Michael Oakes. When the deputy asked Michael Oakes what he was doing in the Grange parking lot, he said he was just making a phone call because he was trying to figure out how to get to the casino. The deputy noticed that Michael was acting nervous. He saw some blankets or a sleeping bag in the back, but the windows were tinted and he couldn't be sure. And in the end, it didn't matter at the time because Michael hadn't broken the law, so he was free to go. However, now that Mark had been reported missing, this run-in with Michael Oakes took on a whole new meaning Day, I got a call from Mr. Cradle, and I remember that I was in a ferry line um, in Seattle, about to take off for Bainbridge. And Mr. Cradle asked me when I'd last spoken to Mr. Stover. Well, Mr. Stover was the kind of client that called you every day. I called him my wake-up call, because every day about 8 o'clock, I'd get a phone call from him, and he would say, kind of growl into the phone. What have you done on my case lately? What's new? And I hadn't heard from him in, in one day. So I told Mr. Cradle, I'd heard with him within 48 hours, but not, not today. And he said, well, his, his house is now a crime scene. Do you want to talk with the, invest with the investigating officer in charge? 
And I said, yes, I do. Because as investigators learned that Mark had just come out of a messy divorce with his ex-wife and that the new man in her life was also named Michael Oakes, you know, the security expert, investigators had to wonder if it was the same Michael Oakes that the deputy had pulled over the day before who'd been acting so sketchy. The deputy drove back to the Grange, but the white station wagon was gone. Investigators would find it at a casino parking lot three miles away from Mark's house. A smear of blood was identified on the rear of the car. That night, detectives were pulling up to Linda's house in Winthrop, five hours away. They saw that Michael's black vehicle was parked in the driveway. The detectives went inside Linda's home, and that's when they told her and Michael that Mark was missing. They looked at Michael and they asked him what he was doing near Mark's house the day before. Michael responded by looking at Linda and saying, quote, Don't worry, honey, I can explain. He said he was in the area because he was visiting his ex-wife. The detectives would remain at Linda's house as they waited for a search warrant to come through on Michael's SUV. One of the detectives would excuse himself to go outside to make a call. But inside the house, more drama was brewing. Michael suddenly began to frantically look around the house, saying he needed to find his pills. While the other detective is inside talking with Linda, Michael then goes outside but what he doesn't realize is that the other detective is on a cell phone, and he watches as Michael heads toward his black SUV, and he pulls out a white plastic bag from the back of the vehicle. The plastic bag is in Michael's right hand as the officer approaches. Michael walks over to the passenger side of the SUV and proceeds to throw the plastic bag over an embankment. Michael is immediately placed into the back of the police car. The plastic bag is retrieved, and inside they find a 22 caliber Browning pistol, a Ziploc bag containing a square of carpet cut from a larger piece of carpet, a receipt from Lowe's, some clothing tags, a bloody napkin, and a mask. When the search warrant for his vehicle comes in, investigators would recover a backpack, shin guards with dog hair on them, a bulletproof vest, 9mm magazines, and a pair of freshly laundered jeans that still had a faint staining on the knee. They also would find a cleaning manual for a Sparrow sound-suppressing silencer. Obviously, these items painted a very grim picture for Mark Stover, especially when coupled with the blood stain on the station wagon. Inside of Mark's house, there was no evidence of a struggle. But investigators would find blood stains on the front porch, on the walls, on the carpet runners in the hallway, and in the bedroom. Mark's driver's license, credit cards, and cell phone were recovered in the front seat of his BMW. Investigators also retrieved three 22 caliber shell casings outside of Mark's home near the carport, a shell casing wedged in between the boards on an outside deck, and they found two other casings nearby. By Friday, Michael Oakes was arrested and charged with murder. He pleaded not guilty. Bail was originally set at $5 million and eventually reduced to $2.5 million, and he was able to post bond and was released. The fact that Mark was missing gave a terrifying credence to the panic that he'd shared with private investigator Lee Heron, that he felt like someone was trying to kill him, that he believed that his ex-wife was somehow involved in the drug plant on his van. Mark was not the easiest client to get along with. He was very demanding, he was gruff, and his politics definitely did not mirror my own. So, but you have to get along with clients, so I did. And after a while, I actually became quite fond of the guy. I only worked on his case during his lifetime for about two months, but during those two months, um, I, I grew to appreciate him. 
when Mark first told me about his, his belief that Linda and her family were responsible, I did, I did think that he was a little, he, a little histrionic in that opinion. I, I couldn't see any evidence for it. That quickly changed, of course, when Michael Oakes was arrested. In fact, Mark was, Mark was right. It was, it was Linda. And I had my comeuppance too, because after Mark's death and I began working with the Skagit County Sheriff's Office in, and Prosecutor's Office in, in the prosecution of Mr. Oakes, I was actually, um, they, the family actually sent a, uh, an investigator to do surveillance on me. And um, that was an odd feeling. You and mean so, the, you mean the Updike family? Yes, yes. Why? I, again, I have I have no idea what anybody thought they were going to gain by having an, an investigator in the vicinity trying to become close to me. It's not like I invite anybody into my locked office or leave files hanging around, or for them that matter, share confidential information about an ongoing case. But they, uh, but. Wally Updike's law firm did send out an investigator to my home on the Olympic Peninsula on several occasions, I suppose, to try to get some inside information. I, I can assure you that they never got any. But at that point, I understood how Mark felt. There was no reason to do that, but somebody did it. And it was the same thing for Mark. There was no reason to go after him. The divorce was over. Everyone had moved on. The financial situation had been adjudicated. Later, Michael Oakes would change his plea to one of self-defense. As time went on, it became clear that there was a pattern, a kind of a buildup to his murder. And it started when his ex-wife, Linda, uh, accused him of stalking her in her home in Winthrop, where she had moved after the divorce. Well, it is true that Mark was in the vicinity of her home in 2009, and he was going through her garbage, which... I don't know what either was or was not on her private property, but he was going through her garbage because he said that she was making phone calls to ex-clients, bad-mouthing him, and she was doing things to boggle up the, the phone service and, uh, and other elements of his business, which he had received as part of the divorce. So he was looking for evidence. He was, he was observed and subsequently charged and uh, took a, took a deal that was not terribly good for him. And, it required him to be on house arrest for a year and then on sort of probation for a year and then the charges were going to be dropped. And of significance of, of the terms of, of that probation is that Mark had to give up all of his weapons. He had to, he had to take, remove them from his home. So the probationary period was just about to end when Mark is pulled over by the Skagit County Police, allegedly carrying drugs. I think that Linda Updike, was trying to, to just to bring down her husband. And she started by getting him arrested on stalking charges, but that didn't work. Mark adhered to all of the conditions and he was about to be, become a free man without a record. So she gets her new boyfriend to make these anonymous phone calls. And now he's pulled over and has his van. Again, he's under suspicion by the police. Well, that ultimately didn't work either because the crime lab didn't even come back with the results of the drug test until after the, the conclusion of the trial of Michael Oakes. 
And I think that's what escalated the whole situation. Linda was just frustrated. She wasn't being able to bring down her ex-husband as quickly as she wanted, so she sent her boyfriend out to kill him. During Michael's trial, he would testify that Mark was allegedly threatening him, that he feared for his children's lives because of those wedding photos. According to Michael, Mark had ambushed him at a Costco, demanding the wedding photos, and in fact that they had met multiple times because Mark wouldn't let go of the idea of these wedding photos. Oaks's story was that somehow Stover had contacted him and then they met several times before the denouement, the day of Mark's death. And, and Oaks had driven down from Winthrop the night before for a final okay corral meeting about the wedding photos, which, by the way, I discovered in, in Mr. Stover's home after his death. Michael testified that Mark had called him and asked him to bring the photographs to his house on October 28th at 7 a.m., the day that he went missing. There was no record of that phone call. During the trial, the prosecution would piece together Michael's movements the day that Mark disappeared through security video. Starting with Linda's front porch, remember she had installed all that high-tech security equipment. At 2.30 in the morning on October 28th, the security camera on Linda's porch captures a very close, prolonged embrace between Linda and Michael. A few hours later, a Walmart security camera captures Michael's black vehicle at 5.16 that morning. Remember, according to his testimony, Mark had asked Michael to bring the wedding photos at 7 a.m. to his home. Ahead of this meeting, it appears that Michael purchases a backpack, camouflage pants and a sweatshirt, an anchor rope, ankle weights, and shin guards. Then at 9.43 a.m., we see Michael driving Mark's station wagon in a Lowe's parking lot near Mark's house. At 9.50, he rents a pair of bolt cutters. He's wearing a black fleece coat and camouflage sweatpants. Later, surveillance video showed Michael returning to the Lowe's at 4.51 p.m., driving his black SUV, and there's another clothing change. He's wearing black gloves and blue jeans. He returns the bolt cutters. Then, casino surveillance video shows a white station wagon driving into their parking lot at 6.21 p.m. During Michael's trial, he would testify that he was the one pretending to be Mark that morning, wearing his signature hat and coat, that he sped down the gravel driveway with Mark's body in the white station wagon, that he'd shot Dingo earlier because she tried to go after him. But according to Michael, he had killed Mark in self-defense, that he agreed to go over to Mark's house that morning because he wanted to convince him that the wedding photos no longer existed. Michael admitted that he went to Mark's house armed, wearing a bulletproof vest, and had a go bag with camouflage clothing, weights, and rope. Michael said that their meeting got heated, that Mark would pull out a gun and point it at him, and the two men struggled over the handgun, and that Michael fired a fatal shot in self-defense. However, a witness would testify that Michael had bought a 22 caliber Browning pistol on October 1st, 2009, and during that purchase, he would tell an employee that he had a suppressor for it. A ballistic expert would also testify that the bullet casings they found outside of Mark's home were fired from a 22 caliber Browning, and it was likely those bullets that were recovered from Ding. Michael claimed that he disposed of Mark's body in the Swinomish Channel. The casino surveillance video had captured him driving down a dead-end road that led to the waterway, but Mark's body has never been found. Neither has the murder weapon. During Michael's trial, Linda was called to the stand. She was asked if by testifying for her boyfriend, Michael, and helping him establish a self-defense case, that would get her off the hook too. She would ask, what do you mean by that? 
The prosecutor responds, if a jury were to find that this was self-defense, you wouldn't have any more liability either. Linda replies, I have no liability in this case. Linda has never been charged with a crime on this case. He was supposed to have been hired as a bodyguard, and they fell madly in love. And Linda seems to have convinced him that Mark was a true, present threat to her well-being. And whether they concocted the, the plot together or whether Michael Oakes just decided to go off and be a hero, I don't know. Jurors would deliberate for three and a half days, and they would find Michael Oakes guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. He would be sentenced to the maximum allowed, 26 years in prison. The judge would say, the knight went out to slay the dragon for the princess. The judge threw the book at Michael Oakes because of what he called the absurdity of his actions after the murder, that Mark's body has never been recovered. The judge would say, there are parts of your story I flat out don't believe and never will, and that if Michael had acted in self-defense, then quote, why not provide the gun and the body? The cruelty of depriving the family of Mr. Stover's remains, the fact that the family will never have resolution, is tough for me to swallow, the judge said. Mark Stover's family would put up a $50,000 reward for information leading to any co-conspirators. And police and prosecutors have made it clear in the past that they believe Michael Oakes did not act alone. I honestly have never been able to figure out Linda Updike's true motive for wanting to destroy her ex-husband's life. I remember asking Mark early on in the investigation why he considered Linda and her father possible candidates in this in this drug setup. And he just said, they just don't like to lose. They will keep on going until they win. I asked Mark, Linda apparently or allegedly had a, had a relationship with one of, one of Mark's closest friends who lived also in the Winthrop area. I asked Mark if, if Linda knew about his, his uh, relationship with his uh, fiance, what, how she would feel about it. Would she be jealous? Oh, he said, no, 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 she'd be happy. She'd be happy. So I just couldn't find any motive at the time of why she would tr go to such lengths to make Mark, Mark's life miserable and ultimately have him killed. And I still don't. Um, and maybe it's just as simple that she comes from a powerful family that's been very successful in the business realm, and they just like to win. Until next time, Murder Chronicles Nation, thanks for listening. And don't forget to stay tuned for our bonus episode, which is available right now. Every week, my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the cases in more depth. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.